We want to talk about COVID this morning briefly, new research and opinion, because in the middle of a summer, when we're more outdoors, a thousand of us or so are still catching COVID every day and more than 300 people are in hospital with it. The situation's the same in Australia. 30,000 cases reported so far this year. And we've talked often on this program about all the implications this has for long COVID in the community as well and the research and going into finding a long COVID cure. That's something we'll keep doing. New Zealander Dr Andrew Reid is at Penn State, Pennsylvania State University. He's the director of its Institutes of Life Sciences and also now the Interim Senior Vice President for Research at Penn State. Andrew specialises in the ways infectious diseases work with expertise as well in how vaccines work to stop them. He's been at the forefront of international research on COVID. Andrew went through Otago and then Oxford Universities. Good morning, Andrew. Hello, Jim. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you again. The main reason we're chatting to you this time is that some experts are worried about the new variant JN1, which is probably accounting for about half our cases here. Can you tell us why they're worried and the extent to which you agree with them? Well, the concern with any of these new variants that are rising in frequency is that they do something better than their predecessors. And if that something is tied up with how sick they make us, then obviously there's a concern. In this particular case, um, this lineage uh, that's rising seems to be able to infect lung cells more efficiently. And obviously um, invading lung cells is very much tied up with uh, or can be tied up with more severe disease. So that's the concern. Uh, And it's not been it's better at doing it than some of what we now recognize as more mild variants which is an interesting um, trend i've had a couple of friends complain about post-covid about uh, unpleasant and lingering effects in their lungs is it unusual that the virus should mutate and if you like revert back to its early days in this respect andrew yes i'm not quite sure it's reverting back to its early days it's got better at this particular variant is is better at infecting lung cells. And, of course, most humans have semi-immune lung cells now, in fact, all of the cells, because of vaccination or previous exposure to COVID. So there's almost nobody left who's had neither vaccination nor an infection. Um, So most of the time, the virus is trying to infect the lungs from semi-immune people. And so I think what we've got here is a new variant that's able to do that well. So it's acquired the ability to invade the lungs better than its predecessors in the semi-immune population. So it's progressing in the sense that the human population is changing as far as the virus is concerned. And we're not going back to the days of, you know, 2020, where we had no immunity at all. These new viruses, the new virus variants are able to do things in immune hosts that their predecessors weren't able to do. Okay, that's clear. I came across that ominous sounding phrase, immune evasion, Just how evasive might COVID get from here on in? I mean, do we need to be prepared for something that could be nastier rather than something that seemed to be becoming more and more benign? Well, I'm a great believer, Jim, in uh, hoping for the best and preparing for the worst. So I do think that uh, there's incredibly strong pressure on the virus now to evolve tricks to get around uh, immunity. That's what's meant by an immune evasion. And if you think about what a virus is doing, it's trying to bind to a cell uh, and get into it, replicate in that cell and get out and bind to new cells. And so there's a phase of its life cycle where it's in the serum and, and there's immune responses like antibodies trying to kill it there. 
And then when it gets into a cell, there are responses within the cell that's trying to kill it as well. And so now with the semi-immunity, almost all of us have antibodies and so forth, um, the virus is looking for ways around those protective forces. And that's going to be always ongoing. So there's always going to be selection for, for all time for uh, variants that can get around the immunity. And so that's going to be constant. So the question is whether any of those variants, the ones we have now, or the ones come in the next you know, years and decades, whether any of those will be able to get around immunity in a way that's going to cause us to be sick. And it's very, very sicker than than now. And it's very, very hard to, to know that in advance. Looking back, we'll be able to understand things. But looking forward, we really can't um, predict with any certainty which way it'll go. Dr. Andrew Reid is with us. A quite different virus is spreading, is a quote out of the Infection Biology Unit of the German Primate Centre. The trade-off seems to be that in going into the lungs, the virus sacrifices replication ability. Can you explain that? How does that work? Yeah, so, uh, the, the you know, the, if you think about what the perfect virus, from a virus point of view, the perfect virus would be able to easily get into a cell, replicate at a very, very high level, get out and get into the next cells and then transmit at very, very high levels to another person. And there's, you know, there's no viruses like that that are really good at all of those phases. And that's because trade-offs kick in. So, for example, the machinery involved in getting into a cell at high efficiency can slow the replication down within a cell, most obviously just because there's a lot of machinery to replicate. So uh, you get these trade-offs that are set up. That's true in any organism. Um, and so in this particular case, the observation of these more recent variants is that they're very good at getting into cells, but they're not so good once they're in the cell at replicating. And, you know, obviously that sort of trade-off can help us. Um, whether those trade-offs are forever time fixed and there aren't other ways that the that the virus might be able to get in more easily and then replicate more efficiently, we, we simply don't know. Um, but it absolutely needs to be that, you know, the ones we're concerned about are these high invasion, high replication, high transmission ones. And, and viruses usually have trade-offs that stop all of those things being extremely high. So far. <laughs> um. <laughs> when I say that, if you look at other viruses, um, for example, flu viruses or any of the other ones uh, in wildlife and so forth, you always find that there is some sort of trade-off where it's variants that are very good at something tend not to be super good at something else. And even something like measles, which is one of the most infectious uh, viruses, you know, it is unable to figure out a way to get around measles immunity. And that's why it's a childhood disease. Once people become immune, they become lifelong immune in, in almost all cases. And, and the virus has not been able to figure out a way to be highly infectious and to be capable of invading uh, an immune person. Um, there's always trade-offs. It's true in all of evolution. The other disturbing news, I suppose you've answered this, but it comes from researchers at Ohio State University with the suggestion that instead of the virus evolving to be more mild, it could be evolving in a more disconcerting direction. Uh, we don't know. Just just to repeat the question, I suppose, we don't know. That's, that's right. And it is a misunderstanding to think that viruses always evolve to be nicer to their host. You know, the, the conventional thinking is if a virus kills its host, it kills itself. And so, therefore, variants that are highly lethal will be selected out of the viral population. And at some limit, that must be true. But, of course, in the case of something like um, uh, SARS-CoV-2, you know, the, it, when it does kill people, it tends to be very late in infections long after most of the transmission has happened. So the actual selection that's coming through from host death is very small. Most of the, the selection is coming on and the virus is immune escape and, and all of that side of things early on. 
And there are lots and lots of situations. Um, for example, uh, myxomatosis in Australian rabbits, where it got released in 1950, and it's evolving to be nastier through time. Um, a lot of other wildlife diseases are like that, West Nile virus, for example. So where we've had spillovers in the past, it's not immediately obvious that they become less virulent. And there are many well-studied cases where they become more virulent. So things can go in all sorts of directions, and it's very, very difficult to predict which direction it's going to go. But that was the idea that viruses don't necessarily become benign. Uh, but that was the scenario laid out for us all early on, that COVID would become a mild seasonal illness in the background every winter, as with other common cold viruses. And we just kind of assume that always happens, and it certainly doesn't. Yeah, that might yet happen. But um, a lot of what that talk was about was that, remember, in 2020, when we had no immunity, the virus was uh, you know, often lethal. Now, almost everybody has immunity. So, of course, we're all better off and more protected from severe disease because of that. Uh, and so uh, we get, irrespective of what the virus does in terms of its evolution, we get the protection from the immunity, partial protection from the immunity. So um, it's definitely going to be, from the immune perspective, more benign. The question is whether the, we could get a variant that will get around that immunity and, and therefore become what we would call more virulent. And when we simply don't know that, and we won't know for you know decades to come where this thing is capable of going. Previous SARS viruses, the ones that cause the common cold, those are less virulent. Some of them are you know substantially uh, less virulent, but other coronaviruses have become more virulent. SARS one was more virulent, and uh, MERS, which is a camel spread from camels to humans, it's more virulent. So these coronaviruses can go all over the place, and we don't know where this one is going. Yeah, I was reading the big question as whether JN1 uh, will now pick up additional mutations. But I was thinking, won't it? It will, won't it? A absolutely. If JN1 remains uh, a dominant lineage, so it doesn't die out, replaced by a completely different lineage, it will continue to pick up additional mutations. Nothing stops evolution. I mean, if these things are replicating, they'll continue to gain additional mutations. Actually, Jim, I, I, although the mutations are a concern, to me the bigger concern is actually recombination where uh, you get whole chunks of the um, current genome cross-fertilizing, uh, replicating with, uh, or joining with another coronavirus, for example, from bats or from wildlife or one of the earlier um, human lineages. That recombination can generate staggeringly different combinations of genes, and they could go in any direction. So as the virus becomes, there are more and more diverse viruses around, the recombination rates can increase. And I think that's actually more of a pressing concern than the mutations. Especially as COVID hangs in there in a reasonably nasty shape and form and continues to circulate so strongly, um, maybe, Andrew. Yeah, absolutely. So the more humans that have um, the virus, the greater the chance that there'll be recombination with one of the wildlife viruses, just because the chances of a wildlife virus getting into a person who has also got uh, SARS-2 is higher. So um, as the virus continues to circulate at high levels, and maybe it'll be seasonal, uh, the chances of that happening um, remain high. And, uh, you know, we just don't know what that could lead us to. Will vaccines keep up with JN1 and whatever comes after it? I believe so. Obviously, time will tell, but I believe so. The RNA vaccines have the ability to swap out new variants pretty easily. Uh, the new spike proteins can be put into those vaccines very easily. That These are essentially digital vaccines where you can swap in the backbone pretty easily. 
And um, I think we'll be able to keep up with things as we see them at the moment. Um, but it is going to be interesting if, um, you know, if there are radical new types of coronavirus come about because of the recombinations, who knows? Um, it is an interesting question um, going forward that I think we've, we can't put any risk figure on that with some certainty. Many people have become insouciant about getting a booster. You know, you hear them talk about, oh, well, I'm not going to bother about another booster. So here on in, your advice would be what regarding boosters? Uh, I would always get a booster on offer. I've had the, I've got the, all the boosters I can get, uh, and I'll keep doing that going forward. I mean, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't. Um, and I, I did not get coronavirus over the Christmas break, but I got something else uh, that laid me out for two weeks. And the idea that I'd want to, you know, avoid a vaccine against uh, coronavirus that could help keep me, you know, working and functioning. I mean, it just seems crazy to me, but, uh, you know. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's a, these are life-saving protective vaccines. Why wouldn't you? The last question. The WHO is warning about a disease X that will likely be the next pandemic. World leaders have been discussing this prospect as well in recent uh, days. Is it possible that disease X is already here and it's whatever COVID becomes now? That is possible. But the way they use disease X is that um, the idea is that we don't know what the next pandemic would be. It could be a flu, for example. It could be another coronavirus. You know, it could be COVID-25 or whatever. And so the idea of disease X is that rather than be protected against particular flu strains or particular coronavirus strains, we want to be able to get protected and prepared for something which isn't specified in advance. And, you know, 20 years ago, nobody would have thought a coronavirus could cause as much problems as it did. And so the idea behind disease X is that we want to get our protections and our you know, mitigation strategies that work against anything so that we, um, we can deal with it. Now, it might be that uh, COVID-19 is going to turn into something quite different in due course with recombinations and then therefore it could be become disease X. But so our particular vaccines wouldn't work against it. We'd need something else. But I think the bigger concern is that a different coronavirus, completely unrelated or another flu strain that we haven't seen before, could become disease X, and we need to be protected against all of these things, not just against particular things we know now. Very good. Andrew, thanks uh, very much for your expertise again. Nice to talk with you. Nice to talk to you too, Jim. Always my pleasure.